Welcome to the Pacific Century. This is Michael Misha Oslin, along with my co-host John Yu from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University with a relatively new podcast looking at the Asia-Pacific region, or as we like to call it, the Indo-Pacific region, America and the fate of the future. Uh, we are extremely pleased today to be welcoming our first guest to the podcast, someone who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Uh, he previously was a professor of history at Harvard and Oxford. He's a senior fellow of the Center for European Studies at Harvard as well, uh, a visiting professor at Tsinghua University, which will be particularly important for our discussion today, and a distinguished scholar at the Nitsa School of uh, Advanced and International Studies, SAIS, in Washington, D.C. Uh, most of you know that Neil is a prolific author, the author of 15 books, most recently The Square and the Tower. Uh, his previous book, Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist, won the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize. Uh, Neil does not limit himself to the world of written words, however. He is also an award-winning filmmaker, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series, The Ascent of Money. He has an entire roster of prizes, which I won't read all of today, but is an active columnist as well, so you don't have to wait just for the books. You can read him in the Sunday Times and the Boston Globe. But most importantly, for our purposes, uh, for John and me, he is our colleague and an outstanding colleague, a historian, and someone who is revitalizing the use of history in making good public policy. So we are thrilled to welcome you to the podcast, Neil. Pleasure to be with you, Misha. Thank you. Um, we want to jump right into it. And uh, what some folks who have read a lot of your works, uh, Kissinger or uh, the works on money or the Rothschilds may not know is that you are also an extraordinarily perceptive and very involved uh, observer of Asia and particularly of China. You travel there regularly. You were just mentioning to me that you were uh, in fact in Japan a few days ago, but you've most recently or very recently been in China. And, and just for some color, I, I wonder if you could share what your impressions were uh, being in China uh, and the sense you got of where the Chinese felt their relationship with the United States was going, given how different it is from just a few years ago. Well, Misha, first a disclaimer, I don't claim to be a China expert. I don't speak the language. But for more than a decade, I've been so interested in uh, China's economic, not to mention political development, that I've gone there regularly and have done my best to talk to people who are China experts, not only in the United States, but in, in China too. And so I was in Beijing just a few days ago at the China Development Forum, which is uh, a usually annual shindig at which uh, Chinese officials and academics and a few corporate types communicate with, schmooze with uh, corporate and academic types from the United States and Europe. And it's always fascinating to, to hear the party line on these occasions. It gives you uh, insights into what message they're trying to convey at a time when the so-called trade war between the United States and China is still unresolved. Indeed, we have a U.S delegation 
uh, en route to Beijing now. And uh, the negotiations were supposed to be drawing to some kind of conclusion, but it's by no means clear what the outcome will be. The key message, and I think it's a striking one, that I heard in Beijing over the weekend was that uh, China is going to accelerate its liberalization, its opening up. It's going to lower tariffs. It's going to accelerate its uh, cleaning up of its protections of intellectual property for foreign uh, businesses. And if you think about that for a second, you'll immediately realize that these are quite significant concessions that can be attributed to the pressure that the Trump administration has placed on China. Don't take it from me, take it from one of my Chinese friends who have jokingly said Deng Xiaoping was the father of the first era of Chinese opening up. Perhaps Donald Trump is is going to be the father of the the next era of Chinese opening up. So I think there's a, a very interesting dynamic at work in Beijing at the moment. The official line is, we're going to do these things. We were going to do them anyway. It's got nothing to do with Trump. And uh, we, we are committed to free trade in a way that the United States isn't. But privately, what people say is, this is actually a consequence of the pressure the United States has exerted. And those fans of economic liberalization and quiet critics of Xi Jinping's shift towards a more state-led economic model are quietly pleased uh, what the Trump administration has done. I mean, that is that is fascinating. There's so much uh, in there to unpack, and in part the question of the liberalization. You know, Xi Jinping, of course, came to to power in his first uh, uh, plenum back in 2012, 2013, I think it was. There was a whole raft of, of uh, promised reforms, most of which have actually not uh, come to fruition. So on the one hand, you know, one, one can ask, is, is this just window dressing? Is it to take the pressure off? But I was particularly intrigued, and instead of getting into that, particularly intrigued with um, what you were indicating in terms of the question of, of, of pressure uh, from the West. And, you know, for 40 years, we've had essentially one model. This is, uh, again, as we remind our listeners on almost every uh, podcast, uh, this is the 40th anniversary of the normalization of U.S.-China relations. Uh, and yet it also seems to be the, the, the end of one era and the beginning of another. And I think you've, in some ways, put your finger on it. So the, from your perspective, uh, you know, the, the argument was always that you can't put too much pressure on the Chinese. Uh, the, the system's too fragile or the engagement with the world is, is too recent or for whatever – or you're just going to risk the larger relationship. But what you've just said seems to indicate that they are recognizing uh, in China, let alone in other parts of the world, that this – that the pressure coming from the United States uh, is, is actually causing – an effect. I don't know. I don't know if we want to call it beneficial or not. I, I think it is, but it's certainly causing an effect. So, from from your perspective, then is is did we did we get China wrong for the forty years in terms of the approach? And our is is the Trump approach actually a necessary corrective to that? Well, I wouldn't want to overstate the continuity because it's a very different ball game back in the 1970s when Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger saw the opportunity in establishing some uh, communication with the People's Republic of China as part of a broader Cold War, Cold War strategy to 
put pressure on the Soviets. At that time, China was uh, economically an insignificant uh, backwater country marred in poverty by the policies of, of Mao's regime. But I think that was a shrewd strategic move. We've come a long way since then. I think in the most recent period, really going back to the Clinton administration through uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, there was a kind of autopilot quality to policy. Mm-hmm. That's to say it became an assumption of a substantial proportion of people in Washington, not to mention on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley, that the relationship between the United States and China was a symbiotic one, and one should do everything to avoid undermining it. This was what led to Chimerica, what I called it back in 2007, a kind of fusion that was economic in its rationale and seemed to make a lot of sense. The Chinese did the saving, the Americans did the consuming, the Chinese did the exporting, the Americans did the importing and so forth. And for American corporations, the prospect of this very rapidly growing Chinese market was almost irresistibly attractive. Uh, I think we tried, or perhaps I should say the Obama administration tried to change course with its famous pivot to Asia, but that was more an attempt to get the hell out of the Middle East than to make any serious strategic reassessment of the relationship with China. And Therefore, by the later period of the Obama administration in the last national security strategy document that Susan Rice was responsible for, the U.S. had lapsed back into the language of of strategic partnership and win-win, which is a phrase the Chinese love. In fact, I had a bet with uh, a colleague about how many times we would hear the phrase win-win during the China Development Forum, and it was easily into the high double figures by the end. The Trump administration was a major break with that autopilot Chimerica strategy. Uh, And I think it was a necessary break. Uh, I think for the president, it started out being about trade. His campaign message had been that China had been essentially stealing manufacturing jobs through unfair trade from the American heartland. It mutated in the course of 2017 into something that was more strategic in its nature, thanks in part, in large part, I would say, to our uh, new colleague at Hoover, uh, H.R. McMaster, as National Security Advisor. And if you compare the national security strategy that he and Nadia Shadlow and others produced with its predecessor under Obama, it is a dramatic change. And I think that, that was a really significant uh, transformation in American strategy in the conceptualizing of, of China. It's no longer just a matter of win-win. The Trump administration has realized that in some domains, Chinese policy implies win-lose. China wins, the US and indeed other Western countries lose, not just in terms of intellectual property theft, not just in terms of China's systematic bending of the rules of the World Trade Organization, but also with respect to the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a kind of Chinese version of Weltpolitik, almost an imperial strategy. I think when you look at the, the relationship through this 
the Trump administration's lens, it is now quite clear that we've gone from strategic partnership to rivalry, competition. And the transformation in the past 12 months since President Trump imposed tariffs on Chinese imports has been quite remarkable. The the point that you raise about the um, uh, this this shift um, is normally, I think, uh, attributed to uh, a sense of fear, right? A concern that that China had outgrown in some ways the role that we may have envisioned for it. It was becoming more powerful, more assertive, more aggressive. But at the same time, it has also been been weakening. It's been slowing down. I mean, we are no, we are well past the days of double digit economic growth. And every year, the 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 macroeconomic picture is is revised downwards. Every year, we hear more about uh, the debt problem. We could go on. We could go on and on. And in your estimation, is is that? a factor as well? Is it, is it sort of two sides of a coin? One side is that we are concerned about a China that, that is not has not absorbed the international norms that we wished and that it was not playing by the rules, so to speak. It's a favorite, you know, circumlocution in Washington. But is there also a sense, did you, did you get or do you feel that there is a, a weakness in China that uh, also allows us perhaps some more leverage? I think you're right about the weakening of the Chinese economy is uh, slowing down despite the uh, best efforts of the government to stimulate both through the monetary and fiscal channels. Demographics will inexorably drag down the growth rate. China's workforce is now shrinking and it will continue to shrink as the uh, legacy of the one-child policy kicks in uh, to the population structure. There are all kinds of problems one can see if one spends time in China. The obvious one is the excessive level of debt and the overcapacity in, in, in industry. So it's not that the United States is filled with fear. I think shrewd observers understand that China's internal problems are very serious. Nevertheless, it's not accidental that this policy shift occurred shortly after China overtook the United States in terms of gross domestic product calculated on the basis of uh, uh, purchasing parity. And I think that's important to remember. Many Americans, if you look at opinion polls, recognize that China has, in at least some dimensions, overtaken the United States. Graham Allison's book, Destined for War, which was published just, what, a couple of years ago, in some ways, timed it right, timed the change of mood right in the United States. There's also been a kind of Sputnik moment uh, with respect to artificial intelligence. For the Chinese, it came when they discovered that a, a Western computer deep mind AlphaGo could defeat their best Go player. But I think for the United States, there's been a Sputnik moment too. We suddenly realized that China had caught up in at least some aspects of, of big technology uh, the Chinese are ahead, for example, when it comes to online payments. Their big tech companies are the only rivals that the big Silicon Valley companies have. So I think while it's true that China has a bunch of weaknesses and is certainly slowing down, it is also true that China has become an equal to the United States in a number of dimensions. And that, I think, is the reason why the, the Trumpian turn which began as a sort of eccentricity of his, because when he was bashing China at the beginning of his campaign, 
most people in Washington turned up their noses at this uh, throwback to a protectionist era. Now everybody's on board. Now everybody's kind of joined up in one way or another in the policy community with anti-China. It's a bipartisan issue, one of the very few in Washington. And so the Chinese have been slightly surprised, I think, to find that that there is a kind of anti-China consensus in Washington, which uh, is far beyond the president's own whims. I, it's absolutely right. I mean, and it is shocking if if you and I am you know based in Washington. It is it is shocking to see the shift um, and, and how quickly it's come about. Now, if you were at least somewhat of a China skeptic or or someone who wanted to warn about some of the directions that China was going, it, it's not exactly a Schadenfreude moment. It's it's a moment of frustration because uh, you know you the uh, people ignoring uh, didn't want to hear any bad news or any talk about uh, potential real strategic competition and and now everyone has you know shifted over to one side of the boat but what's an interesting potential reaction I mean, if you look at at since 1979 really the major job of a chinese leader in foreign policy has been managing the american relationship uh, and that's obviously become increasingly difficult and, and i would argue i think it became it started becoming difficult under the last years of the obama administration when they recognized that the pivot the rebalance had not worked things were not going the way they wanted uh and yet xi jinping came up with some alternatives and and one of the 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 major ones if not the major one is the one belt one road um initiative which is to of course link eurasia uh and beyond in a a series of uh infrastructure trade aid deals really to recreate old trade routes that are both land-based and maritime uh and in some way as relations have worsened with the united states to attempt to rely more on the one belt and one road as as an alternative and in fact uh while i think you were meeting in uh in uh, china or at least right afterwards xi jinping was in europe um what is what is your sense of of where europe is going with china i mean for a long time it it just seemed you know sort of uh, fanciful to think that there could actually be really truly deep enduring ties between europe and china that went beyond basic economics but included uh, included politics and, and potential other issues. Looking at it now, looking at, at uh, Britain, looking at Italy, which has just joined up to One Belt, One Road, looking at Germany, what is your sense of how that balance is, is changing, if it is at all? Well, I think uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is what we're told to call it now, One Belt, One Road, is, is so 2017, is something that extends far beyond the original uh, Silk Road spice route uh, theory. The, the, the original blueprint, as you said, was to kind of revive historic trading routes. But a little bit like anti-China in Washington, Belt and Road in, in Beijing is a bandwagon that all kinds of people have got on board, including the big tech companies, and they've interpreted it in a far more global way. So that, for example... The big tech companies, Alibaba and Tencent, are running all around the world as far as Latin America, uh, investing in in financial technology. So the Belt and Road Initiative has become a, a, a global enterprise. It's uh, grown in all kinds of directions, and one of those directions was all the way to, to Western Europe. Uh, and the Italy story has captured the headlines because – 
at least one part of Italy's populist government, the five-star part of it rather than the league part of it, decided to sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, the headlines here are, are a little misleading because, for example, a number of West European countries, including the United Kingdom, had already signed up for the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is in some ways just as important a part of China's world policy as Belt and Road. And uh, so for some Europeans to complain about Italy joining the Belt and Road is a little bit a case of the pot calling the kettle black, if we're still allowed to say that. At the same time, if you look at where the Chinese have been investing in Europe over the last decade, by far their favorite destination has been the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Twice as much Chinese FDI went into the UK as into Germany, which uh, is in second place. So China's had a European strategy for a while, and uh, this is just the latest chapter. And the key to the geopolitics of the strategy is that the Chinese like to deal with the big European economies uh, one by one. They don't like to deal with the European Union as a whole because the European Union as a whole is a very powerful player, especially when it comes to trade. Uh, So I think the Chinese have continued cleverly to play the European states off against one another. This is something that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has tried to counter. uh, But with the Italians breaking ranks on Belt and Road, he's not succeeded that's uh, it, it's funny to think that that may be you know the area where where we we should follow China's lead on dealing with the EU or not not dealing with the EU. It's a, it's an almost American you know approach to want to deal one on one with the countries, and it and it's a great point that that this actually has been, and I think it, it's been ignored by Washington or by policymakers for a long time. The degree to which China has been having a, a European strategy. One one note, by the way, on on Belt and Road. Um, I was calling it Belt. Road, and I just came back uh, from Indo-Pacific Command out in Hawaii, and they drilled into us that we should call it One Belt, One Road because the Chinese didn't <laughs> like it. They dropped it precisely because of this image <laughs> that the One Belt and the One Road all, all revolved around China and went back to China. And I like the fact that Indo-Pacific Command has, has really – talk about you know, this shift that, that you've been – that you've been uh, highlighting and, and detailing here. Um, if you went to, to what was then known as Pacific Command five years ago, or, or quite frankly, even just you know three years ago, uh, they were much more hesitant um, in, in terms of what they would talk about and, and their assessments, and you could sort of see where they where they felt things were going, but they were not unleashed, so to speak. And uh, the the change was actually just shocking. I went with a, a group of our colleagues from Stanford, and uh, we all were just marveling at the degree to which um, these guys were were absolutely leaning in on the the risks, the threat, the challenge that they all face from China. And so I just to honor their, their commitment here, I, I've actually gone back to calling it Obori, especially maybe if it annoys our, our Chinese friends occasionally. But let, let's well, let's um, – yeah. The nomenclature, Misha, is important here. Uh, one of our complaints when it comes to trade relates to the Made in China 2025 industrial strategy. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese response to our complaining about it was just to stop talking about it. And I'm sure they'll give it a new name soon if they haven't already. So you're right to, to, to catch me out there. I, having just been in Beijing, I, I'm afraid I'd come back with, uh, with the, uh, the wrong vocabulary. It, it's a symptom, I think, of what, what feels like Cold War light, 
the sort of early, early stages of a Cold War that we're uh, we're now talking this way. And I think what you point to when you talk about Indo-Pacific Command is dead right, because if there's one institution in the United States that has strong self-interest when it comes to the Chinese challenge, it's the Navy. Absolutely. Um, and you have actually anticipated my next question, which is that you have written recently about a new Cold War, or I, I think you uh, phrased it as Cold War 2.0, if I remember correctly, which, which again, is, is a, a, a dramatic change. Uh, you're not the only one to, uh, to talk about it uh, somewhat in these terms. But why do you think it, it – do, do you really think it is Cold War or Cold War 2.0, Cold War Redux? Um, and if so, what, what do we do about it? It is up to a point. It's more likely that the United States and China will be in a Cold War than they'll be in World War Three. The argument, remember, of Graham Allison's book is that it's more likely than not that they will end up in a hot war. The best analogy in that book by far is the comparison of the relationship between uh, with the one between the United Kingdom and Germany before 1914 then the UK was the incumbent power, Germany was the rising power, and you know how that ended. I don't, I don't think there's going to be some kind of Asian 1914, uh, not least because it would be extraordinarily foolish of China to get into a hot war with the United States. But I can well imagine a Cold War. In some ways, it's already begun because the Cold War was quite different. In the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union competed technologically, invested not only in nuclear weapons, but in a space race, in the competition that uh, had all kinds of spin-off benefits, not least uh, for the, the US economy. There were aspects of the Cold War that one wouldn't want to see again, particularly the proxy wars that occurred in what we used to call the, the Third World. And one wouldn't want to be on the brink of, of nuclear catastrophe as we were during the Cold War on several occasions. But you could have a Cold War without proxy wars and without nuclear brinkmanship. It could just be a kind of technology race with artificial intelligence uh, and quantum computing taking over from nukes and the space race. That seems to me already to be underway. Uh, Kai-Fu Lee's book, AI Superpowers, kind of delineated the nature of this rivalry. And what I see happening in the US-China relationship is almost a subconscious return to certain aspects of the Cold War, greater emphasis on ideological difference uh, in at least some parts of the Chinese regime. And of course, in the United States, there's an urgent need for an external threat. The United States doesn't work well without that. We've had this kind of lull when the threat of Islamic extremism that seemed so huge in uh, the aftermath of 9-11 has receded. And uh, guess what? The United States has gone through a period of deep domestic polarization. Cue the rise of China. It's one of those things that the Republicans and Democrats can broadly agree on. So I think that for both domestic reasons and because of the interests of uh, what was once memorably called the military-industrial complex, the United States is kind of up for a Cold War. And I, I think we're seeing a transition from trade war to tech war. That's the, the, 
the chasing around trying to stop Huawei building all the 5G networks to Cold War as the thing takes on a distinctly geopolitical and strategic quality. But not but not entirely unwarranted in your view, right? I mean, as we go back to look at the, the things you've you've mentioned, it's not simply a ginned up competition. There are there, you know, China's depredations, be they on intellectual property, cyber hacking, you know, South China Sea, there, there are reasons that that we are maybe coalescing to this view of a less benign China acting in the world. Absolutely. From yeah. a historian's point of view, the the best thing about the Trump administration uh, is the fact that it has forced the military and uh, national security establishment to rethink uh, the relationship with China. I think the impetus that Donald Trump gave this has been crucial, and it has woken the United States up to what was becoming a very serious threat to its power. Remember, the Soviet Union never got this close economically to the United States. Uh, China has done what no other power has done since 1872, which is at least on one measure to match the United States in terms of, of GDP. This is, a, in that sense, an unprecedented moment. And although it's true that China has its problems, when you look at the cutting edge of the Chinese economy, you look at what they're able to do with uh, technology, particularly with artificial intelligence, you realize we were asleep at the wheel because we essentially let them get away with large-scale intellectual property theft, all kinds of breaches of the rules of the WTO, which had in any case been stretched to breaking point to let China in back in 2001. What seemed like a smart play in the 1970s and 1980s to build China up as a counterweight to the Soviet Union to exploit the rivalry between the Soviets and China has turned out to be an obsolete policy, at least for the last 10 years, not least because there is no longer a rift between Russia and China. They are, to all intents and purposes, on the same page, uh, at least in terms of geopolitics. And the United States has, be, has been, as I mentioned earlier, on a kind of strategic autopilot, and Trump, Trump woke the sleeping driver up long overdue. Absolutely, which leads to one more question on this, and then we're actually going to have a special bonus round for our listeners. But but you mentioned, you talked about the AI race, you talked about the competition and, and, and cyber, and you're out in Silicon Valley. You've, you've relocated out there. Do you see a rift between the coasts here, meaning in Washington, this this rapidly coalescing agreement that we are in some type of, of significant, serious competition, a Cold War, if you will. Uh, everyone on both sides is sort of signing up to that. And yet out in Silicon Valley, it still seems to be a lot about cooperation, about opportunity. Do you see the two sides here talking past each other? It depends which company you're talking about. To. I think the vision of Chimerica has been a very powerful one for Apple mm -hmm. uh, because Apple is a truly trans-Pacific company that designs in California and assembles in China. But for Facebook and Google, I think it's a different story because it's clear now that the Chinese are not going to let them in uh, and when the Chinese do let Western network platforms in, as Uber discovered, it's, uh, it's not a level playing field. The locals have all kinds of advantages. 
So I think for the network platforms, the game is up and the prospect of access to the Chinese market has faded. And they now recognize that they're in a global contest with the Chinese network platforms, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, for market share. Apple, I think, is is different because it's uh, a hardware company with significant supply chain issues. For for Apple, the Cold War is a major problem. But guess what? Apple is furiously transitioning into into being a network platform rather than a hardware business. I wonder why. That is a great uh, that is a great point. I, that was actually one of the clearest and I think really important. Uh, laydowns in terms of how to think about Silicon Valley and not simply paint it with uh, with one brush or another. And and I'm I'm sure we're going to return to that. Um, uh, before before you go, um, well, even though this is a podcast about Asia, we are deeply interested in the rest of the world. We've already been talking about Europe, at least in terms of China and Europe. But we can't resist asking you about the the great. Uh, international issue of of the moment, which is Brexit, uh, which, uh, you know, three years ago when the process began, I don't think anyone ever could have imagined uh, being in the spot we're at. Um, if, if you'd be willing to give us some of your thoughts on where Britain is and where it goes from here, that would be fantastic. Well, I feel like saying, how long have you got? <laughs> as long the- as you need. The bottom line is that some of us uh, warned that Brexit would be extremely difficult to do. I likened it to a nightmare divorce that would cost much more and take much longer than the Brexiteers led the public to believe. And I think that view has been vindicated by events. We're speaking on a day when a whole succession of alternatives to Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal agreement have been voted on in the House of Commons and every single one was defeated. And it's pretty clear that uh, on the basis of uh, back of envelope calculations, if her withdrawal agreement is put to another vote, a third vote, it will be defeated too. So we're in the strange situation that uh, the British public in a referendum voted for Brexit, but the House of Commons elected more recently than the referendum in the 2017 election cannot decide on a form of Brexit that has majority support. The political system is in a strange kind of crisis. The prime minister should really have resigned some time ago after her withdrawal agreement was devastatingly defeated by the biggest margin in British parliamentary history. But uh, she has limped on. I think at some point, Her Majesty the Queen needs to step in and force the leaders of the political parties to form a national government to sort this mess out before parliamentary democracy suffers a really serious loss of legitimacy, which it will do if they make the mistake of holding another referendum. That would be another punting of responsibility from the House of Commons to the electorate. If the result of the second referendum, should there be one, is against Brexit, if it's for Remain, then all the people who voted for Brexit in 2016 will feel that they've been betrayed by the political class. I don't like to think what that will do for the legitimacy of British institutions. So this is a kind of divorce from hell. And as often happens in very difficult divorces, 
at least one of the parties is having a nervous breakdown. And oddly enough, it's the party that sued for divorce in the first place. I pointed out earlier that China had been investing substantially in the United Kingdom before all this blew up. I sometimes wonder if in the end, having returned Hong Kong to China uh, back in the late 90s, the UK should just return itself the whole thing to China, <laughs> admitting that it can no longer govern itself. I, I suspect that if Brexit ever happens, uh, the Chinese will be amongst the bargain hunters when Sterling slumps in the aftermath of the divorce. But the way things look at the moment, it's easy to believe that Brexit won't happen at all. And it will have been one of those great farcical detours in British political history. I, I hope it can be farcical. I occasionally worry that it will ultimately be tragic. I certainly look on the conduct of the British political class uh, with with dismay. It's a it's a shocking it's a shocking performance, really. And I particularly deplore those politicians who opportunistically decided to back Brexit. I'm thinking of you, Boris Johnson, and have consistently acted in such a way as to make it impossible to achieve in practice. They they do have a lot to answer for. And just just for the the history element, the last time the crown stepped in to force a national government was when? 1931, in the teeth of the Depression. And uh, although the economic situation is by no means bad, the political situation is now dire. We, We have a completely extraordinary situation in which the prime minister said that she would resign, uh, make way for another conservative leader if they would pass her withdrawal agreement. But even that concession doesn't seem sufficient to get the withdrawal agreement passed. So it's not clear at this point who rules in Britain. The prime minister seems impotent. The House of Commons can't decide what it wants. If there is any point in our having a a head of state who is a hereditary monarch, it must be that she intervenes when the professional politicians completely mess it up. So if you're listening, Your Royal Highness, we're we're waiting for some from some action from you at this point, and you certainly have the authority and the legitimacy to knock their heads together and we're get go- them to behave like adults. We're going to send this podcast to the palace uh, because of your plea. Um, I know you just returned a, a day or two ago from Japan, and it is, uh, to me, you know, who's been dealing with Japan for, for over a quarter century now, one of the great ironies of at least modern history that we would be looking at what's happening in the U.S., we'd be looking at what's happening in, in Britain, and come to the conclusion that Japan is probably the most functional democracy, leading democracy in the world today, where Abe is going on his seventh year. Uh, you may not say he's achieved everything he's wanted, but he has achieved an enormous amount. And the the overall political stability in Japan is is something that I, I just don't think Britain would have enough pound sterling today to purchase. It's certainly impressive to spend a time in Japan. I hadn't been there for ten years. Oh, wow. and uh, I I I I was fascinated by 
the sense of stability that Shinzo Abe has succeeded in creating China, uh, Japan rather, has the, the, the oldest population. It has the, in many ways, the worst demographics. Uh, it also has some pretty terrifying public debt numbers. But what seems to be true is that a social stability has been achieved and a political stability has been achieved that has allowed a kind of managed slowdown to the very low growth rates of the last two decades. It's fascinating, and it must be said for a visiting Britain, rather enviable. I I sat there wondering how two countries with so much in common, islands, as it were, perched on the edge of Eurasia, with their own very distinctive histories and cultures, could have ended up in such different places. And as I, as I put it to one of my Japanese friends, you must be glad that nobody had the idea of an Asian union like the European Union, because if they had had that idea, and I do remember it occasionally being floated, you'd, you'd probably be trying to do Jap exit right now, and you'd be finding it as destabilizing as Brexit has been in Britain. So Japan's stability is due, I think, in part to there not being that kind of uh, confederal entanglement. It's also due, of course, to the fact that Japan has far, far lower immigration than any major Western economy, including the UK, with a foreign-born population of barely 2% compared with 13 or 14% in the case of the UK and the US. But that's a whole different subject. Absolutely. One that we will undoubtedly turn to. Uh, but for now, this has been, as always, uh, when talking with you, Neil, it's been an extraordinarily wide-ranging but clarifying, and I think that's really the, the key issue given the complexity of all of these things we've been been dealing with and talking about a clarifying conversation. Uh, we, we greatly appreciate your time uh, and the work that you're doing. And so for John Yu and Misha Oslin, we would like to, to thank you, Neil, for taking the time to be with us today. And I know our listeners appreciate it as well. It's been a pleasure, Misha, and uh, look forward to hearing future episodes in this excellent new podcast series. Thank you. Thank you again to Neil Ferguson for joining us and giving us a really sweeping view, not only of, of Asia, of China and the U.S., uh, but also of Brexit, which uh, anyone who's interested in, in foreign affairs is obviously looking at. Uh, I am now joined by my co-host, John Yu, uh, who is going to uh, give some thoughts as well about what we were talking about with John, uh, with Neil. But John, before we do that, um, I would like to go to the mailbag, if I can, and, and read uh, some fan mail that we got. Really? Yes, awesome. yes, yes. I, I told mom not to send anything. Well, it, 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 well you, you, have actually, you have actually anticipated my letter here. here oh. This is the letter. It says, Dear Misha, the last math class you took was Algebra 2 in high school, and you nearly failed it. And that's please why you're a historian. And, and please don't pretend to know math or to talk about economics. <laughs> Love, mom. Uh, what mom's referring to 
is on our last podcast, I brought up a conversation that I had with one of uh, our Hoover colleagues uh, on uh, the the trade uh, relations between the U.S. and China. And uh, I, I was trying to make the point that overall they're not that significant. And I said something like the bilateral trade between China and the U.S. accounts for 4% of U.S. Only four percent of U.S. trade and one four uh, percent of China's trade and one percent of U.S. trade. Well, of course, Mom's right. I don't understand math or economics. And I got that wrong. What I really meant to say, and what I, I'm pretty sure my colleague was saying, is that these represent about four percent and one percent, respectively, of GDP. Meaning right. that that our trade with China is much more significant. Obviously, it, it's it's our largest trading partner, and for China, also very significant. It's not one percent of America's trade, but it is about one percent of GDP. And so the argument right. is that even if we have an extended trade war, that both economies will be able, most likely, to ride it out longer than than what you might hear from from doomsayers. So I just I wanted to read my mom's letter and to clarify that I, I really don't understand economics. But now moving beyond that, John, um, you heard what Neil had to say. You you heard him talk about um, uh, his view of, of having just been in China and relations with China. Uh, we didn't talk that much about the trade issue. We didn't get into it. We didn't have time. But what was what was your take on, on his view, particularly of the Cold War 2.0? Uh, how do you think yeah. – how do you see it? Well, first, Misha, I apologize for – uh, coming late and missing the interview, which I, I, I really envy you the chance to uh, spend time uh, kicking around ideas with Neil. And I have to say it shows why I'm so Asian because my conflict was I had to take my mother out to dinner with several of her friends from her retirement community. <laughs> so I, you know, you know, that's, that's Asian filial piety. If there ever was laughing. any, <laughs> we're actually honoring John for, for exactly his filial piety, a very Confucian son. And I want to call out our producer, the blue Yeti, who was really <laughs> upset at me because he only understands filial impiety. When I texted him that, he said, what does that actually mean? He had no idea what filial piety or impiety was. So these are the conditions uh, we're working. This is the, this is the perspective I hope to bring. <laughs> to the you, you are enlightening us all. <laughs> I hope the food was good. It was, it was Asian food, right? <laughs> no, this is the weird thing. My mom uh, wanted to take them to French food, which is she, she is sort of living up to is <laughs> terrible. She's only had French food three times in her life. She really doesn't like it. So we went to a good French place today, and she loved it. But that's because she picked the dishes which were most Asian. <laughs> so, so what is the most Asian dish on a French menu? The moule frite. <laughs> oh, of course. That's great. <laughs> right, so I, but but seriousness, I you know I I was really struck by. Neil's view that we might be at the dawn of a Cold War uh, with China. But I think it's uh, important to have uh, – to give the kind of cautions that he did at the very end of his comparison uh, because uh, you know, China is far more formidable than the Soviet Union was, I think, uh, although not in terms of military strength. I mean the one you – know, the military difference is uh, you know, Russia abuts onto Western Europe and had a huge conventional weapons advantage and then eventually – uh, tied and even slightly surpassed the U.S. in nuclear weapons, whereas China is not really that much of a threat in conventional weapons or nuclear weapons, but could be one in the next generation technologies. But the, really the bigger difference is you know, the Soviet Union, as Niall pointed out, just not nearly close to the United States 
in terms of economic size, trading relationships, influence around the world in the same way <clears throat> I'm sorry in the same way that China is now. And the other thing is that our economies are so intertwined in a way that the US and the Soviet Union, you know, the Cold War part of that was an basically an economic embargo by the West against the Soviet, you know, what we used to call by the free world against the Soviet sphere. And now it's very difficult to imagine that there could actually be a clean break and separation. But I, I just wanted to uh, just comment in one part. I think you might be interested in as well is – I don't know if you remember. There used to be these arguments about the Cold War, remember, and who started it. <laughs> and remember in the beginning – uh, critics of the United States, most of whom are on the teaching faculties of American universities, uh, coming out of the Vietnam War, uh, there was all this historiography that said uh, the United States was to blame for the Cold War. There were so many missed opportunities to make peace with Joseph Stalin and that the warmongers in Washington in the late 40s and early 50s uh, brushed those peace opportunities aside, took a hard – stance against the Soviet Union and essentially brought on the Cold War. However, I think and, – and, and so tell me if I'm wrong with this – but I think now the tide has turned and most people, most uh, historians with access to the Soviet archives, at least for a period – I think Putin has now closed them. But when the archives were open, it became clear that there was never any chance for peace with Stalin, that Stalin was really ideologically motivated and saw the capitalist world as an enemy and uh, – really wanted to continue the struggle against the West. And that is actually uh, the Cold War steps on the part of the United States were more uh, defensive or reactionary, reaction, reactive, not reactionary, but reactive in nature. And so I wonder when we look back at the history of this moment, if we are going to start a Cold War with China, is it the case that we really started it? I, Just looking at it from now, it doesn't seem to me – like that's the case. If there's anything that this resembles in my mind, it's not necessarily the Soviet U.S. 1945 to 1952 period at the birth of the Cold War and the birth of containment policy. It strikes me like we're much more like pre-World War One, where uh, we're more like Great Britain and China's more like Wilhelmine Germany. And you have the rise of a power that's both strong militarily and economically – and they're all intertwined. I mean, people forget that the right the uh, royal family of Prussia of, of Imperial Germany was related through Queen Victoria to the royal family of England, and there were a lot of financial and social ties between England and Germany. And yet, they went to war in World War One because of a conflict of of uh, geopolitical interests. So I wonder when what hist future historians will say. I hope they will say, you know, it doesn't look to us. Like it was the United States that started this Cold War with China. When you look at what China was doing at this time in history against us in terms of economics and politics and ultimately in the military world, or the realm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I think um, I think Neil was actually um, uh, largely saying that. It's certainly a, a view that I agree with. And I think Neil was saying that when he talked about um, you know Trump. The, the Trump policy, the Trump actions. We were talking more specifically about uh, starting off with the trade issues and then it and then expanding. That it was a reaction, uh, you know. So the idea of the Cold War, it's it's obviously, and I think you're very right that it's going to be much more 
complicated to disentangle all of this than it than it was with the the U.S. Soviet Union post World War II uh, breakdown. But but that the idea of of this cold cold war, and I'm not sure that I would necessarily go as far of that. Though I, I think uh, the way that Neil phrased it is is right as he talked about this really is a a long-term competition in, in, in certain key areas, uh, but that it, it, it was very much forced on us. I, I just think we don't make nearly enough of the, the rampant stealing of technology uh, that China has done. In fact, I don't think we're ever going to know the degree to which the economy of the China that we have today, you know, this world's second largest economy mm. or by PPP, purchasing power parity, the world's first largest economy, uh, was actually fraudulently uh, fraudulently achieved. I mean, yeah, we, we all know that starting from such a low base that there's an enormous amount of growth that you can have in a, in a catch-up economy before you have to have stable development mechanisms, social trust, transparency, things like rule of law, things like that in order to make this go on uh, for generations. So, of course, there was going to be growth in China. Uh, but the, the growth to this level, to compete at these levels uh, in terms of, of, of a high-tech um, across the board – uh, how much of it has been stolen? Forced technology transfer, uh, pilfering of intellectual property, cyber hacking, uh, and the like. And it continues on. In fact, there was a, a good uh, article. I don't know if you saw it. That was uh, in Slate, I believe. I actually have just lost it in front of me. But anyway, it was in Slate. It was on um, Boeing and Airbus uh, signing up for what the author called a suicide pact with China, which was to have production and, and assembly facilities in China. Of course, China just made this massive 300 plane Airbus order. And the argument, which I, I don't think is wrong, is that if you look back on every way that China has um, engaged uh, Western uh, leading you know, productive uh, uh, corporations and, and, and tech companies and the like, it is precisely to do what it's doing with Airbus and Boeing, which is to, to get the technology, you know, enter into a, a joint venture of some kind, get the technology, and then use it to crush the opposition so that the, the, there are no more solar panel makers, essentially, right, except for those in China textile makers. You can go from low tech to high tech. And so again, all of this I think is is that it leads us to this question of reaction. Are we late on the reaction? Are we overreacting? But I think history is 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 going to judge if you can ever really begin to disentangle all the things that China did to say that no, what we were and again I think Neil made this point is that we were on autopilot. We were dilatory for far too long. The problem is now course correction is that much more difficult. That's a good point. Uh, it's an excellent point. I think there's uh, just uh, one or two observations. I think we are at a I mean turning points, you know, not exactly the right phrase because as you say this has been going on for a while. American policy has been weak. Uh you know, one, you know, at one point though that I think we are transitioning to a new phase is that a lot of the gains that China made in the growth of the economy didn't depend on stealing at the beginning because as you as you say uh, you know there's a, a classic example Korea Japan or other examples where you had economies that competed at first just because they had low wage low cost environments and so you just had the movement of production to China as you had had to Japan or Korea or Taiwan just because it's much cheaper to make certain things there, low-skill uh, production of like plastic things, for example. Uh, and then uh, you have the transition to uh, 
as you're saying, to higher tech goods. Um, is that going to happen successfully? Could they do it without cheating? They've already been cheating for some time. I think the the uh, national intelligence director under the last administration made the claim that China had stolen several trillion dollars worth of intellectual property. But still at the same time, uh, we haven't – we're not at the point where you or I or any of us are going to buy a Chinese-made car. No American airline is yet the point where you know, we're going to buy a Chinese-made airplane. You know, we're not going to buy – you know, the, still the <clears> – <throat> excuse me, the high-tech consumer goods, uh, high-tech uh, computer systems, things like this, software. Still not – you're not going to trust something from China. That's why Huawei, that Huawei case is so important because that really is the tip of the spear for the Chinese high-tech industry where they are – they do seem to be a year ahead of American and European companies, but it seems like they stole uh, some amount of that technology. Um, so, what do you do about it? So, I, here's two points. Two points about the remedy. Um, one is, suppose China promises we will pass any intellectual property law you want us to in the future that will govern our future conduct. The problem with China, and this is this is a view I've had from talking with a lot of Chinese lawyers actually and Chinese students, is. Nobody trusts the government there. Not even the Chinese people trust their own government. And so they tell me, you would be crazy to trust a Chinese government if they promised to obey intellectual property protections and not to steal technology in the future. There's no way for, uh, for China to credibly promise that they will keep their word given that they violated all these principles before. And so I, I caught the very end of your interview uh, with Neil, and he mentioned Hong Kong. I think this is a great example. We actually use Hong Kong when we teach this issue of how do you reach international agreements. China made a promise about Hong Kong's independence. I think most people – I think you agree this. I think Hong Kong – I think China has broken those promises to Great Britain once it was able to take advantage of the deal to boost its own power. If they're going to do that with Hong Kong, why wouldn't they do it with trillions and trillions of dollars in the future of their economic competitiveness at stake? So I don't know how China could actually credibly prove to the United States that it would obey any intellectual property law. And if you don't have that, I really think – as I think you were suggesting, I think that there's – you don't have a deal because then the deal is just going to be, oh, we'll buy some more stuff from China or China will buy more stuff from us, which is just – you know. In trade terms, that's not going to do any difference because that just redirects the purchases they would have made from other countries to the to the United States. Doesn't really solve any problems in international trade structurally, and is probably going to taper off in the end after they've stolen yet more intellectual property. So I don't know what the the real solution there is uh, to the the intellectual property innovation problem that you've put your finger on. Yeah, well, I think that that uh, obviously, if we had easy answers, right? I mean, we would we wouldn't be in the the position we are. And and one of the ironies, and and to sort of boot your question, but I think one of the ironies uh, that as a historian we'll look back on is that we uh, invested to the degree that we invested in really trying to understand China, and there were obviously. Many people who did, but a greater number who didn't, and just sort of went with the flow on, on whatever it was. But it was always about. We were always focused on, um, 
the rising China concept in, in different ways. One would be just purely economic, right? There's, there's going to be more trade and more growth and therefore more wealth for, for Americans to get. The other, the other one would be sort of a rising China in the sense that it was rising up to our, our anticipations of the role that it would play. What we did not do, on the other hand, was try to look at all of the ways in, in which it was not living up to expectations. It was doing these things that you've just that you've just mentioned. And so we really haven't developed the intellectual capital for it. We haven't we don't have the case studies. We don't have those who sort of spent, let's say, 20 years looking at, well, you know, what is a what is a China that sort of breaks the rules uh, mean as opposed to a China where we're just we're just around the corner from it suddenly signing up to all of its WTO promises. Uh, so we're really I, we've we have unilaterally disarmed ourselves intellectually from really understanding the China that we have versus the China we hoped we were going to have. And and it's a real problem because now, of course, we are playing catch up with both what China's doing, but we've talked about this before, and Neil actually uh, talked about this uh, in the uh, the beginning of his his comments, is that we've all swung uh, to the other side. Now, some of us were there, but so many people have swung to the other side. So again, there's there's a lack of sort of considered analysis and debate. Instead, it's all, well, well, China's bad, right? So now we've got to yeah. react to a bad China. And it, and it really worries me. It's no way to be doing to be doing foreign policy. But once you're in the raft on the on the rapids, you have very little time to learn how to how to control the raft, right? You got to learn to control the raft beforehand before you get on the rapids. But we all just jumped on the raft in the middle of the rapids. <laughs> well, that's going to sink. <laughs> well, God, God, I hope not. Right? There's, there's, I mean, there's too many people on this raft. Kick them off. It's like some. It's making giving me a flashbacks to freshman year political philosophy. It, it's going to tip to over a lifeboat. That's right. Well, it's going to tip over. In the words of one of our one of our famous elected officials, who asked, oh, yeah. "If we move, if we move all of our U.S. forces off of Okinawa onto Guam, isn't it likely that Guam will tip?" Over, I, I think that guy's still in Congress. He too. is. Actually, he is. In, he is, is in Congress. Yeah. Um, uh, if we take in the House, he might be chair of the Armed Services Committee. Or something. It, it's one of the great YouTube <laughs> moments. If you just if you uh, just take the few minutes to watch it. Um, so, John, what what else um, before we before we wrap up? Uh, we we've actually been going for a while on on this um, podcast. Yeah, critique your interviewing skills, please. Ask. Niall, about the question of the day, which is, what did the Chinese have to do with the Mueller report? <laughs> oh, exactly right. <laughs> That's the talk of the day, not Brexit. It's the Mueller report, twenty four seven. And it just, I actually had one thought when I was, you know, sort of laughing to myself about how you might be the only podcast in America this week that did not mention the word Mueller. Well, we did until you mentioned it. You blew it. We were actually pure until just 30 seconds ago. And now you've dragged us into the muck and the mire. And I thought it was the Russians, though, that were having all the impact on the Mueller report. Not the. This is the interesting thing. And it was just another thought I had about the Russia China difference and making these analogies is, uh, you know, the Russians clearly are up to all of these, uh, you know, cyber espionage. They must be rolling in it at the old KGB headquarters, laughing their heads off at how they have disrupted our system. Even if they didn't influence the election, the independent council investigation was good enough for what they wanted to achieve. You notice I don't think the Chinese have tried anything like this as far as I can tell. You don't see – I mean the Chinese 
in a way, they seem interested in sort of classical espionage, you know, stealing government secrets, stealing the data, you know, the personnel management database with all the security files of every American official in there. But they haven't seemed to be up to the same things the Russians have. They haven't tried, as far as I can tell, to, to interfere with elections. They haven't tried to break into electoral systems. They certainly haven't been, been <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tricking our intelligence agencies to do an internal mole hunt where the mole, suspected mole, happened to be the president of the United States. You know, they haven't uh, seemed to be engaged in these kind of games. I wonder why you thought that was. I mean, if Chinese China really is the competitor, the main competitor strategically, not so much Russia as China, uh, the Chi- it's almost like the Chinese – are the unintended beneficiaries of all this, right? They, it's almost like they couldn't have done better if they had paid Russia to do what they've done to us. They haven't had their fingerprints on any of this. They haven't done anything with all this. But to the extent the United States has been obsessed with this internal mole hunt of you know constitutional proportions and has been paralyzed at some level because of the investigations, this is only played to China's long-term benefit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in part you you know you you answered the question yourself, which was they don't have they didn't have to. I mean, let the Russians do it. I, I have I'd love to think that as they were making blinis in Vladivostok together or wherever the <laughs> heck it was that Putin and she you know were sort of wink wink nod nod. Boy, can you believe the Americans are falling for this? Um, it is it is stunning. I mean, if we had you know any you know credibility left in 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 the 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 mainstream us media then um the, the the actual scandal would be how in the hell was this ever raised to the level of of which it was right but um and and even those who have who have pushed it among the farthest are now saying that oh well there was nothing to this this steel dossier and and the like right after 2 years of telling us this was the you know the most important intelligence derived document since you know since who knows what since something in OSS in World War 2 but um the, uh, the, the Zimmerman the Telegraph. This the Zimmerman Telegraph. Right, right. This, this is the biggest the Zimmerman coup, Telegraph. One document ever in the history of espionage since the Zimmerman Telegraph in World War One. Exactly. Or, or the XYZ papers in the American Revolution. It's, the Germans it's, and the Mexicans were going to gang up on us. <laughs> it's unbelievable. But but your point about China is exactly right. Number one, it has. It probably cannot believe its luck uh, at at what we've done to ourselves. Of course, Trump has has not, you know, it hasn't paralyzed him and he's he's pursued all these these uh, China challenging policies. But on the other hand, don't think that the Chinese didn't learn from this. I, yes. I mean, we know that that probably their their cyber capabilities overall far outstrip the Russians. They may not yes. be as mendacious today uh, in the use of it. And, and they've actually been if we can put it, this is sort of bizarre to put it this way, but they've been um, they've been disciplined, right? I mean, they've no, been yeah, disciplined in well, terms that's of. That's what I want to know. Why haven't they? Well, what they've used it for? They they've used tools, it to yeah. to to penetrate our economic secrets and our corporations and our insurance companies. They're getting the information they want. They're getting the trade secrets and all of this stuff. So, so they've been disciplined in how they've used it. But don't for a second think they didn't look at this entire episode and think, my God. These this nation of suckers. I mean, you know, I, I bet they're going and they're reading P.T. Barnum right now. You know, they're going back and saying a sucker is born every minute in America. Now, how do we take advantage of this? And you you can totally see where this could come into play. So this is, uh, you know, 
we have we also and, and this is something maybe to, to close out on, but it's an interesting point in, in general, which is um, we have gotten so far away from the sensitivity we had during the Cold War to the the dark arts of of uh, propaganda um, of of the intelligence uh, communities acting in 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 ways to undermine countries. We really thought again, you know, once the Cold War ended, that was pretty much over. There was no longer a great ideological struggle. Um, but our our adversaries never stopped, and and mm. even though we don't look at Russia as the same way we look at the Soviet Union, if anything. Uh, I think that the assessment is they're actually more active today in America than they were even during the Cold War. And, of course, the head of the FBI has called this the golden age of Chinese espionage, maybe 25,000 different agents working on behalf of China at different levels. So we are we are in a, a world that would make John le Carre blush. You know, it, it would be, it's like the fantasy of all espionage writers of what's actually happening, but we don't care. We just don't me, <laughs> pay attention. Let me end, let me end on a optimistic note then because I think Please. there are Please. two <laughs> there are two I think two optimistic points here as uh, you know one uh, at least the fighting is uh, cyber and not warfare of the traditional kind so right. if yes. we're going to have this cold war with China or at least a competition and struggle if we're like not necessarily Ru- you know, Russia and the United States maybe we're like Germany and Great Britain, but we're not going to build fleets of dreadnoughts and go after each other. If the fighting is uh, cyber and trade secrets and theft, much rather have the competition and, and the fighting such as take place in the in an intangible world where people don't die in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. But then I think here's a second, uh, I think, hopeful point for the American perspective, from our perspective, uh, is that maybe the other thing that's different between us and the Cold War and maybe why China hasn't stooped to the levels that Russia has stooped to is that they have more to lose. So if you're Russia, yeah, interfere with the Americans' political system. Do anything. What what could they do back to us? Our country's in such sorry shape now. There's not a lot the United States can do to really harm us. We've got all these sanctions on them. Their economy is just based on oil right now, and they've got some nuclear weapons. But there's not a lot else that can – happen that's going to make them worse off. China, on the other hand, maybe they're worried. You know, Maybe here's where deterrence does work. I mean, they are so worried about their own political and social stability. They may have this view, we had better not try to do things like try to create dissension within the American society, try to undermine their faith in political institutions, because what if the Americans try to do that to us? You know, They are far more fragile, I think, Internally, you've made this point too. They're, they are very fragile. That you know, China has had a history of dissolutions and regionalism and warlords, and they always have this fear of the country coming apart. I, if I were them, I wouldn't want to start that escalation because the United States could easily win if we put our minds to it because they're far more vulnerable. And so maybe that's a source of strength for us in the future that we didn't necessarily have against the Soviet Union. Absolutely. That is a great I, – I, I concur heartily. I think a lot of our listeners would as well. It is a fantastic – and you're right, John – an upbeat, happy point on which to end in this otherwise sad litany of the pathetic state of the world in which we live today. So thank you for giving us some hope. It's obviously due to the fine French meal you had with your mom tonight, <laughs> so we may have to send you out for French food 
every time before we do a podcast. Uh, but we thank uh, our listeners, uh, as always. Uh, we will be back soon, and we will be beginning, if I can uh, uh, foreshadow a little bit, uh, we will be beginning with some regular visits from, from eminent personages to come and talk to us about Asia. So Neil Ferguson was the first, but we will have many more to follow. And so with that, uh, this is Misha Oslin signing off for the Pacific Century with John Yu and the Hoover Institution. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.